You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. It was a beautiful place, a magnificent encampment behind which, and protected by dense undergrowth, they managed to sustain the charge of three or four regiments, And here we suffered terribly, for although, when we first opened fire, several men had been slightly wounded by the bursting of shells, here for the first time we were placed face to face with them, and for the first time found out the danger of sharpshooters, who were not more than two hundred yards off behind trees, aiming deliberately at us. The balls hissed around our heads and struck at our feet, striking men and horses. I shall never forget my feelings when I saw the first man killed. He was within thirty feet of me, and held the position of number four, in other words, the one who fires the piece, on the piece next to my piece, and just as he was about to fire the gun, a ball struck in front of the ear, and he fell backwards, expiring without a groan. I received two bullets through the legs of my pants. Private Richard L. Pugh, Washington Artillery of New Orleans, Anderson's Brigade. The wounded came in pretty fast and soon filled up the hospital, and then they were laid down on the ground outside. We were all hard at work and only just begun at that when the rout began. Everybody else was running off as fast as possible, but the surgeons resolved that they would not leave their wounded, and I was not going to go either when my services were most required. Most of the hospital attendants ran away, but some remained, and we continued our work of attending to the wounded, though the bullets began to come unpleasantly near. One passed through the tent and within three inches of my head as I was dressing a wounded man, smashing a bottle of ammonia liniment that stood on a box beside me and sending the fluid right into my face and eyes. Very soon the rebels came pouring in on all sides. We, of course, made no resistance, and they did not fire upon us, though some leveled their guns at us, and we rather expected to be shot than otherwise. I know I expected every moment to get hit, for the balls were flying all around, although I do not think they were meant for the hospital or any of us around there. The ground outside was covered with the wounded all around, and the yellow flag was over the tent. I did not know but what I should get frightened in the first battle, but I believe I didn't. I was too busy, and if I had been ever so much scared, I don't think I could have run off and left our wounded crying for help. It was a pitiful sight, I can tell you. I hope I never to see the like again. Such groans and cries for help, and especially for water, water, all the time. We could not attend to them half as fast as they needed, though we worked as hard as we could. Soon after the first appearance of the rebels, General Hindman of Arkansas rode up and placed a guard over us and assured us we would not be molested, though we must consider ourselves prisoners. Two rebel surgeons came up, too, and established their hospital right by ours and made liberal use of our medicines and hospital stores. 
There we worked all day upon the rebel wounded as well as our own, for there were a great number of them brought there. Private Samuel H. Ells, Hospital Steward, 12th Michigan Infantry. Welcome to episode 120 of our Civil War podcast. My name is Rich. And I'm Tracy. Hello, y'all. Thanks for tuning into the podcast. As y'all recall, we spent quite a bit of time in the last show talking about the intolerably slow march of Lew Wallace and the 3rd Division to the Shiloh battlefield on Sunday, a mystifying affair that has remained one of the most enduring controversies of the battle. Meanwhile, back on the battlefield, Events were gradually building toward a climax on that first day of the battle. On the western end of the battlefield, the situation on Sherman's and McClernand's front was stable and relatively quiet. Occasional artillery and musket fire sometimes flared up in brief but intense clashes in that sector, but it was nothing compared to the massive and sustained ferocity that had swept over this side of the battlefield for five hours earlier in the day. Some of the rebel units here were now even starting to shift back toward the center and eastern sectors of the field, while those who remained showed little enthusiasm to renew the attack that afternoon, and Sherman's and McClernand's equally battered formations were glad to have it so. The situation was also stable in the center, where W.H.L. Wallace's two brigades, together with Prentice's remnant, had beaten off a series of Confederate attacks on the hornet's nest. That series of rebel attacks had culminated with Gibson's costly assaults on the Federal position. On the east side of the Hornet's Nest, Hurlbut's two brigades, deployed in the Peach Orchard on the north side of the Widow Bell's Cotton Field, had continued to hold their ground after their brief clash several hours earlier with Jackson's, Adams, and Chalmers' rebels. That was before Jackson and Chalmers were sent over toward the river to assault the far left of the Union line. And even on the far eastern section of the battlefield, east of the Hamburg-Savannah Road, the situation was, for the moment, stable. MacArthur's three blue-clad regiments were still holding their own, although they still hadn't been able to link up with Stuart's brigade. Stuart's position on the far left of the Union line was the most precarious of any formation in Grant's embattled Army of the Tennessee. With the river to their left and unable to link up with MacArthur's regiments to their right, Stuart's remnant of perhaps 800 men, mostly from the 54th Ohio and 55th Illinois, had their backs to a 100-foot-deep ravine, and they faced the much larger Confederate brigades of Jackson and Chalmers. Stewart's men had no contact with friendly troops and no artillery support, and they were desperately low on ammunition, even resorting to rummaging through the cartridge boxes of the dead and wounded, hoping to find just a few more rounds. So every one of them realized that an all-out rebel assault would almost certainly push them back from their precarious position on the edge of the ravine. But for the moment, no such Confederate attack was in store for Stuart's Lonely Brigade, since Albert Sidney Johnston, personally overseeing the rebel efforts in this sector of the battlefield, 
was instead preparing a big push against MacArthur and Hurlbut. Some of the Confederate units that had recently been assaulting the old farm lane and thickets of the hornet's nest were seeking to regroup and replenish ammunition, and so for the moment were no longer battle-worthy. Somewhat to Sidney Johnston's left, Gibson, under Bragg's orders, was making his costly series of futile brigade-sized attacks on the hornet's nest. For his own assault, Sidney Johnston now had two of the three brigades of Breckinridge's Reserve Corps, and these two brigades were fresh, having yet to engage in combat that day. Colonel William Statham's brigade consisted of four Tennessee and two Mississippi regiments, and Johnston placed them mostly on the west side of the Hamburg-Savannah Road, facing Hurlbut's Federals in the Peach Orchard. To Statham's right, Johnston deployed the brigade of Brigadier General John S. Bowen. Bowen's two Arkansas and one Missouri regiments faced MacArthur's Yankees. Bowen also had an additional regiment, designated the Second Confederate, because its ten companies had been recruited from several different southern states. To add weight to his assault, Sidney Johnston ordered Jackson's brigade, which had been confronting Stuart's remnant, to turn west and join in the attack he was putting together. That meant Jackson would go in on Bowen's right. Sidney Johnston, mounted on his Big Bay Thoroughbred Fire Eater, rode from one rebel unit to another, encouraging the troops as they moved forward to attack the enemy. Johnston had personally directed Breckinridge in placing his two brigades, and then, as the men moved off, the army commander rode with Bowen's brigade as it marched forward, making sure the men went into the assault exactly where he wanted them. It was about 1.30. As Bowen's four regiments and Jackson's two advanced within range of the Union line, MacArthur's three Illinois regiments opened up on them. So, too, did the 41st and 28th Illinois, the left two regiments of Hurlbut's left brigade. Bowen's Confederates pressed onward through the storm of both artillery and rifle fire, but then his attack stalled, and Bowen's men sheltered from the fierce incoming fire along the lip of a shallow ravine. Sidney Johnston was watching the progress of the assault, and when it stalled, he spurred Fire Eater forward. Reaching Bowen's position, he rode along the lines, exhorting the men to rise up and close with the enemy, and thus encouraged Bowen's men edged forward from their ravine. They didn't exactly charge forward, but they did return the Union fire as best they could, and they kept up the pressure on MacArthur's regiments. Sidney Johnston then rode back to a somewhat safer spot, where he could still observe the progress of the attack, especially the movement of Statham's troops on the west side of the Hamburg-Purdy Road. There, too, the Confederate assault stalled in the face of heavy Union defensive fire. Johnston then turned to Tennessee Governor Isham G. Harris, who had attached himself to the general staff, and said of Hurlbut's Federals, quote, Those fellows are making a stubborn stand here. I'll have to put the bayonet to them. End quote. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more— 
We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The Nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industries shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. The Federals in the Peach Orchard had indeed been stubborn, but by that point, their line was ready to give way. Under the pressure of Sidney Johnston's assault, Hurlbut's hard-pressed Union troops were beginning to run low on ammunition. In one regiment, the 31st Illinois, the situation became so critical that the unit's colonel ordered his men to cease firing and prepare to repel the rebels with their bayonets. MacArthur's troops, by now exhausted and badly battered, were experiencing similar problems, but the most vulnerable position in this part of the Union line was still Stuart's lonely brigade at the far eastern end of the line. Stuart's remnant was just about at the end of its tether. The men were down to their last few rounds, and some of them had none left at all, so Stuart gave the order to withdraw, hoping to pull back through the hundred-foot-deep, hundred-foot-wide ravine immediately behind him, quickly but in an orderly manner. It was too late for that, however. Some of Jackson's Confederates had already penetrated between Stuart's position and MacArthur's, and so they could fire down the length of the ravine at the, reti- at the retreating Yankees. At the same time, as soon as Stuart's men pulled back, Chalmers' rebels rushed forward in hot pursuit and lined the lip of the ravine, shooting down at the retreating Federals. The Union retreat became a complete rout, with one Confederate soldier comparing firing into the ravine to shooting sheep. The lucky Federals who managed to make it through that deadly fire regrouped several hundred yards north of the ravine. With Stewart's brigade out of the way, the Confederates had leverage on the next formation in the Union line, MacArthur's. The officers of the 50th Illinois, MacArthur's leftmost regiment, soon realized they were in for trouble. Sure enough, already engaged with Bowen's attackers to their front, when Jackson's Confederates came up on their flank, it was too much for the men of the 50th, and they fell back. The 9th and 12th Illinois were next up, and they put up a stubborn fight, but then the relentless rebel pressure from front and flank forced them, too, to retreat. With MacArthur's brigade to his left gone, Hurlbut could do little to prevent the Union defensive line here from continuing to unravel. He shifted units from his right to reinforce his now badly threatened left and held his position in the peach orchard. It was approaching mid-afternoon by this time, and Cindy Johnston's assault had been battering the Federals in this sector of the battlefield for about an hour. After Stewart's and MacArthur's retreat on his left, 
Hurlbut's position was precarious. The Confederates had also managed to get two more brigades into the attack. Gladden's brigade from Withers' division of Bragg's corps struck Prentice's lines. Gladden's brigade was actually on its third commander of the day, since Gladden and his replacement had both went down, and the formation was now being led by Colonel Zachariah C. Dees. To Dees' left, Stevens' brigade of Cheatham's division of Bragg's corps also attacked Prentice. This brigade had also lost its commander earlier and was being led by Colonel George Manny. Next to Manny's troops, Statham's brigade continued to keep up the pressure on the defenders of the Peach Orchard, even as Bowen's, Jackson's, and Chalmers' brigades bore down heavily on what remained of the Union left flank. Despite the Confederate advantage in numbers and position, the Federals defending the Peach Orchard stubbornly held their ground. In particular, the inexperienced men of the 45th Tennessee found themselves roughly handled by the troops of the 41st Illinois. The Tennesseans were stopped cold and fell back. Breckinridge came upon the scene and tried to get the Tennesseans to renew their advance, but he was not successful. In frustration, Breckinridge rode over to where Sidney Johnston was observing the fighting and complained that he had a Tennessee regiment that wouldn't fight. Governor Harris, sitting on his horse just a few feet away, was visibly upset at this embarrassing report. He asked Breckinridge to show him the regiment. Sidney Johnston thought that was a good idea, so Breckinridge took Harris over to the spot, and the governor proceeded to scold the reluctant troops from his state, but to little effect. The badly shaken regiment still wasn't willing to venture forth again into the storm of enemy fire sweeping the Widow Bell's cotton field. While Harris tried to get the 45th Tennessee moving, Breckinridge rode among Statham's other regiments, trying to get them to press the attack forward. Here, too, he was unsuccessful. Riding back to Sidney Johnston, the frustrated former vice president reported that he could not get Statham's men to charge. Johnston replied that he would help Breckinridge get the troops to fight, and in the ensuing action, although the Confederate Army commander's decision to lead directly from the front succeeded in getting a major assault launched against the Union defenders of the Peach Orchard, that decision also led to Sidney Johnston's death on the battlefield at Shiloh, as we've already described back in episode number 117. Although it led to his wounding and death, Sidney Johnston did manage to launch a simultaneous multi-brigade assault, something the Confederates were often not able to do at Shiloh. As the ragged rebel line advanced, the Federals defending the Peach Orchard opened a murderous fire with rifles and artillery, mowing down many of the attackers. But the Southerners pressed onward, and just as it looked as though the two sides would cross bayonets, the Union line began to give way. Abandoning the Peach Orchard, the retreating Federals rallied just to the north, taking up positions in the edge of the woods there. When the advancing Confederates crested the knoll in the middle of the orchard, Hurlbut's blue-clad line again laid down such a heavy fire that the rebels went to ground, seeking cover. And so, for the moment, the Confederate advance in this sector stalled again, although in seizing the peach orchard, it had just made a significant gain. As the Confederate advance stalled after capturing the Peach Orchard, Albert Sidney Johnston lay dying in a ravine just to the south of the Widow Bell's cotton field. 
The group of officers around Johnston noted the time of his death as about 2.30. The staff officers wrapped Johnston's body in an overcoat or perhaps a blanket. Then most of them set out to carry or accompany the general's body back to the site of the headquarters camp of the night before. Several of them, though, went to inform the Army's other high-ranking officers of Sidney Johnston's death. One of those who set off on this sad but essential errand was Governor Harris. His own horse had run off while he'd been attending to the mortally wounded Johnston, so Harris mounted Fire Eater instead. He didn't get far, though, before he realized that the general's horse was suffering so severely from wounds that it could no longer carry him. Finding another horse, Harris continued on to PGT Beauregard's headquarters, where the governor informed Beauregard that Albert Sidney Johnston was dead, and so he was now in command of the Army of the Mississippi. After receiving the news that he was now in command of the Army, Beauregard remained in the rear, directing events, or responding to events, from there, more or less as he had done through much of the battle. Braxton Bragg, after receiving the news of Johnston's death, moved over to assume the active direction of the fighting along the Hamburg-Savannah Road. He soon got the stalled Confederate attack moving forward again, pressuring Hurlbut's shaky new line behind the peach orchard. But despite the battering he had already received, and in spite of the almost desperate weakness of his precarious new defensive line, somehow Hurlbut's men held. This stand was probably due, in equal measures, to the stubbornness of the Yankee defenders and the continued difficulty the Confederates faced in trying to put together large, coordinated assaults. At the opposite end of the battlefield, the Confederates had by that time renewed their attacks against Sherman's and McClernand's battered divisions, although with much less force than earlier in the day. Only two rebel brigades were available to renew the assault here. One of them was Claiborne's. It was badly shot up, but well led. The other formation was Preston Pond's Louisiana Brigade, which had seen little action so far today and was nearly at full strength. That southern manpower in Pond's Brigade made a huge difference by mid-afternoon as the Confederates on the western end of the battlefield advanced once again against Sherman's and McClernand's two badly weakened divisions. Once again, the roar of heavy firing rose on the western side of the Shiloh battlefield. The Yankees held, but Sherman realized that the Union line would have to pull back again to avoid a collapse. It was probably around this time, mid-afternoon, that Ulysses S. Grant made another of his visits to Sherman. The Federal commander roved up and down his front throughout the late morning and afternoon, giving such direction as he felt his division commanders needed to hold the line. Grant encouraged them and assured them that help was on the way, that Lew Wallace and the fresh 3rd Division were marching down from the north and would no doubt be arriving on the battlefield at any moment. As he roamed up and down his lines, visiting his division commanders, Grant spent the least time with Sherman, in whom he had complete confidence. By late afternoon, the heaviest weight of the Confederate attack was shifting to the center of the line. The rebel brigades that had spent themselves attacking W.H.L. Wallace's line in the Hornet's Nest along the old farm lane and in the thickets there, were still not ready to renew the contest. But when Brigadier General Patton Anderson's brigade shifted over from its previous position on the Confederate left, Anderson decided to have a go at the Union lines on the far side of Duncan Field, the position held by Wallace's men. 
Anderson's attack would be driven back, but the assault marked the beginning of the end of the hornet's nest. And next week, we'll pick back up with the story right here and talk about the final collapse of the Union defensive position at the hornet's nest. That means it's time for this episode's book recommendation. And our recommendation this time is actually a couple of magazine back issues. Two issues of Blue and Gray magazine from back in 1997 that featured coverage of the Battle of Shiloh. Yeah, um, volume 14, issues 3 and 4 of Blue and Gray magazine cover both days of the battle, and both of the feature articles in those issues were written by park historian Stacy Allen, who is still at Shiloh. In fact, he's the chief ranger at Shiloh National Military Park. So if you're interested in picking up these back issues of Blue and Gray magazine, it's well worth your effort to do so. Don't forget you can find all of our book and magazine recommendations if you head over to the podcast website, which is www.civilwarpodcast.org. At the website, you can also find out about your podcast host, find links to the show's Facebook page and Twitter feed, and find out how to become a member of the Strawfoot Brigade. Uh, speaking of which, with the members' episodes, we're still telling the story of the Great Locomotive Chase, and we just released the fourth episode in that series about that very dramatic Civil War story. Uh, anyway, we have some new members to thank, Kevin, Mark, and Stuart. So thanks, guys. And then before we wrap up this episode, we did want to make one small special announcement, and it's that, at least until we finish up the Shiloh story arc, we're going to return to getting a new episode out to y'all each week. Yeah, truth be told, Tracy and I kind of miss doing a new show each week, and we've heard from some of you that you miss it too, and we realize that with having to wait two weeks for each new installment of a story like Shiloh, uh, that can be difficult. And you've had to wait even longer for this particular episode, uh, which we don't really have any excuse for the delay, except we live in Colorado, and sometimes it's unbearable to think of sitting inside all weekend working on the podcast when it's summer and it's so nice outside. And, and we've been working on another podcast project lately and trying to budget time for it too. Uh, but anyway, we think a good plan will be to put out weekly shows for you guys again, at least until we're done with Shiloh, and then we'll reevaluate things, right? Yep. Okay. So we'll talk with you guys again next week, but thanks for listening to this episode of the Civil War, 1861 to 1865, a history podcast. We do hope you'll join us again next time when we'll continue with the story of the Battle of Shiloh. But until then, take care. Thanks, everyone. Bye. Bye.